Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Delivery Layer podcast. I'm Solomon Khan, and I'm here with Maya Mihailov. Maya, welcome. Thank She's you. The, Thank you, Solomon. The founder of Savvy AI and uh, a data friend. And I'm excited to have this conversation with you about uh, machine learning and driving data or driving impact with data. Um, Maya, do you want to introduce yourself, give the audience a bit of a background? Absolutely. Um, so my name is Maya, and prior to founding Savvy AI, I founded another company called GP Shopper out of New York City, um, right where Solomon's located. And um, we grew in GP Shopper, and in 2017, we were acquired by Synchrony Financial, um, a large uh, Fortune 50 bank here in the U.S., and after that, I led a division that built AI products and technologies for the next generation consumer out of Synchrony Financial. And then I just had to go back to my building roots. Like once you get the building bug, unfortunately, it's you can't shake it with antibiotics. You can't shake it with global pandemic. You just got to go back in uh, and start something new and build. That's that's great. Um, yeah, it's funny. I I I took over a decade off between my my building uh, building itches between an old startup that I that I did in delivery layer. I think that's a, a reasonable amount of time. I think that's normal. <laughs> I, I, I think I jumped way too quickly back into it. I was like, wait a minute, I, I missed this. And, and it's almost like you get this weird startup pregnancy brain where you forget certain things about starting a company from zero to one. And then all of a sudden you're in it again. You're like, oh, was it like that before? I don't seem to remember that. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, this one. Well, certainly it's an interesting time to be starting uh, a machine learning company. So maybe talk, t tell, tell people a little bit about what Savvy AI does and then also how, how you think about where machine learning fits in, in today, because I think it's not just generative AI that's the, that a lot of people are talking about that, but there's actually a lot more to it. Absolutely. Uh, so Savvy AI is a platform that helps actually product teams and data teams to build, to launch and to manage their own AI apps in minutes so that they can see ROI quickly and deliver machine learning as a practical product for their workflows, for their products, so they can just level up as an organization without the need for additional resources, without the need for data scientists. They can just self-empower to take advantage of machine learning and AI like never before. Cool. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because I feel like that gap between a data science notebook and a customer-facing product, or even if it's an internal customer, sometimes seems insurmountable for, yes. for, for certain organizations. Like what, what, how have you, how have you seen that play out? Have you seen that play out? How does Savvy AI fit into, fit into solving that type of problem? Absolutely. And I think there's been this evolution, you know, machine learning and AI, they're not new concepts. Obviously, they've been around for decades and the technology has made it easier for more teams to get involved with machine learning data streaming systems and the evolution of data has coincided to make it um, more readily available. But I think of the world sort of in these Gen 1 tools and Gen 2 tools and the Gen 1 tools which started over a decade ago are some of the big names that you know, like the H2Os of the world in uh, data science. And they were started by data scientists solving a very known problem for data scientists, which is, 
Gosh, I really don't like just using Jupyter Notebooks. I really don't like using R, using Python. This seems really clunky. Why can't we have a better interface for building models? Because that was the problem. Like, how are we going to build these models and tune these models? And, you know, since that problem set occurred 10 to 15 years ago, the industry has it evolved. We realized that the problem has shifted from how do you make a model to exactly what you said, Solomon, like how do you get a model into production? Like, great, we've been able to make these models, but for a business, this isn't a science experiment. This isn't lab work. This is how can we make use of these tools? How can we make use of this new technology to drive business results? And I think that's, you know, we see Savvy as sort of that Gen 2 tool, where it's at first, you know, we had these tools that were just made for specialists and just made for companies with large infrastructure, with large teams that were focused on data science. And now, like many other industries in technology have evolved, we're at a new generation where now it's about how can we level up the entire organization and how can we take hands, uh, take this technology from just the domain of these specialists and of these big infrastructures and bring it to everybody everywhere so everybody can upskill and everybody can supercharge their products and workflows with machine learning and AI. Okay. So on, on the one hand, that sounds exciting. And on the <laughs> other hand, that sounds a little scary because I have been in organizations where I've worked with product people or engineers who like really knew what they were talking about and I would totally trust to do certain things. And then I've been in organizations or even within the same organization. Sometimes, sometimes you don't trust your, your product people to be able to independently operate in some of these domains or rather they would say that they don't trust themselves. This isn't <laughs> a, a judgment about them that they wouldn't, they wouldn't say about themselves. How do you, how do you, how do you find democratized data playing out in the real world? Is it that by enabling the easier use cases for everybody, you still have data teams doing it 90% of the time, but then 10% of the time you have other people doing it? Is it that actually you're finding when you enable people, they upskill and level up and they're, act they're actually able to do a lot more complicated things than we might expect. H how does that play out uh, on the customer side? Uh, well, I think practically it plays out in, listen, AI and machine learning is gonna be the next big digital transformation. And you can't just silo it in your organization and say, hey, we have an AI center of excellence and only these people can touch this new technology. I mean, imagine if back in the day we said, hey, there's an internet center of excellence and a digital center of excellence and only this team is allowed to use digital tools and the rest of the organization, you better get comfortable, you know, with your pocket calculators and your spiral bound notebooks because no one else is doing digital transformation. I mean, it's as a technology uh, evolves, it's ridiculous to say that the rest of the organization can't and shouldn't take advantage of it, especially in a technology that's going to have so much impact across the business as machine learning is. So I, I challenge the idea that certain people can't and shouldn't AI, 
that it is only the domain of folks with PhDs. Listen, folks with PhDs and multiple master's degrees who live and breathe linear algebra are great people. They're wonderful people. We have them on our team. But the reality is, is that in order for an organization to really be able to take advantage of machine learning, they have to be able to get it to these frontline and these business teams because they know what the business problems are. They don't just know what the data problems are. They know what the business headaches they're dealing with every day, which is like if you're in logistics, which truck should I roll today to get this package to this location on time in a cost-effective manner? Or if you're in a payments company, we have these reoccurring transactions coming in and they're coming in by the tens of thousands. How do we know which ones are fraud and which ones are legitimate or which ones just need a human review? I mean, these aren't these shouldn't be bottlenecked in one department of an organization, we need to start feeling comfortable with other teams collaborating with this technology. I really like that, actually. And I think that what you said about you're not gonna have a single AI center of excellence that is ultimately gonna be able to handle all of the business needs for a diverse organization with needs big and small is totally, totally correct. I mean, for the big problems, absolutely. I mean, we came from banking. So you think about problems like fraud and anti-money laundering. Those are endless problems that need a team's resources every day, all day for years, because it's not going to go away and it morphs and it's constantly changing. I'm talking about your frontline business problems, places where almost... Right now you're using a hand-coded if-then statement. You're using a decision tree. You're using somebody looking at an Excel spreadsheet that's like two weeks old saying, okay, I think we should do this, or wait, we should have done that two weeks ago. So you're, you're looking at situations that are frequently occurring business problems that really need the teams that have those problems occurring in their departments to be able to solve them. And then some of these big chunky problems, like, you know, like I said, like fraud, AML, protein folding, self-driving cars, you know, all of these big AI problems, absolutely. Like leave that to the data scientists, let them, let them noodle on them because they're constantly evolving and changing. Yeah, I think that makes complete sense. And I, although it's, it's uh, interesting on the PhD side of it, because I, I find that for most business problems, you don't you like uh, number one you don't you don't need the type of things that you learned in a phd in order to solve them it's sort of like you don't you, you don't need a phd in material science to be a house builder right but you might need a phd in material science if you are working at a two by four construction company to understand your process and how it changes the wood before it gets delivered to the builders who are using the two by fours. Um, and, and, and I think that there's definitely that, that sort of distinction in data work as well, where you've got a lot of the core libraries that are very sophisticated and use a lot of sophisticated math, but to use the libraries, you just need to call the libraries. Yeah, exactly. I, I think you need the right tool for the right job, Solomon. You're absolutely correct. You don't always need a cannon to go after a mosquito. Sometimes you just need a purpose-built tool that's like, okay, this is what we need for a small to mid-sized problem. This is what we need for a big problem. And, and like I said, 
listen, PhDs are great. And in fact, it's funny that you bring up a, a material science PhD. We, we had a gentleman on our team. We have a gentleman on our team who was pursuing a, a PhD in material science and he has since pivoted. <laughs> um, but, but the, the point being is that it's just, it's the ability for these teams to say, I know the problems I'm facing and I don't need to go to another department to have them tell me what problems I innately know. And also even with machine learning, you know, I've been recently um, kind of reading a new book about kind of machine usefulness, that we should strive for machine, uh, the author of the book argues that we should strive for machine usefulness versus machine intelligence, that we need to make these tools useful for people so that we can really level up and we can really upskill instead of just shifting labor around from one person to another. He, he gives the example of self-checkout lanes uh, in grocery stores and at convenience stores. And he's like, well, that's kind of shifting labor around. It's not really an innovation. You're just saying, okay, instead of a cashier doing it, now you have the shopper doing it. But true machine usefulness will take that labor off of someone's plate. That's interesting. How, how does that relate or what are the implications of that for the org structures of a traditional data team? You mentioned before that it's tough to have the AI center of excellence. And I, I found that most companies have a data team, which is the de facto machine learning center of excellence. And to what degree our to what degree is that is that a fit? Is that not a fit for what organizations need? How, how do you think about that? You know, I have a hard time with with the kind of question of should it be centralized or should it be decentralized? Because obviously different organizations work differently. So I don't think there's one right answer of like, we should centralize everything for all organizations or we should never centralize anything for any organization. The problem I have with a centralized structure often and the concept of like a data czar or a chief data officer, I, I understand why that standardization makes sense. I really do, especially in a massive sprawling organization that may have locations around the world, may have different divisions, et cetera. But sometimes what I see is it, it's trying to create standardization and instead it leads to inefficiency and bottlenecks where they're trying to do a one-size-fits-all approach to data solutioning for product teams instead of asking the product teams, what do you want? How can I empower you to work faster? And how can I empower you with the data you need at the time that you need it to make your product smarter or make your workflows better? So I think that there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach, but it has to be almost a hybrid where you can still have this power team that is solving these big chunky problems for companies. And at the same time, you can still kind of take a high low approach where you're still empowering um, the, the folks on the ground to solve their own problems and with the data they need when they need it to do it. So I, I think it almost has to be a blended hybrid approach. I understand how it started centralized because with every new technology, the, usually the, the go-to approach is like, let's grab a group of smart people and they'll figure it out for us. But we're at a level of maturity with machine learning and AI where we have to start thinking about how can the rest of the organization now use this tool because it's fundamentally going to be a competitive advantage for the next decade and beyond. Yeah, I, I agree with that. My... My last job, this was, I think, one of the most important decisions that I made in terms of how I was going to lead the data team, which was 
I had the opportunity to sort of end slash take over some of the tools and processes that were done by a lot of the functional teams. So for example, did I want to own Salesforce data <laughs> for the sales team or did I want to own some of the marketing platform data infrastructure that people were using for day-to-day data-driven decision-making for marketing purposes, but they, they had spun up independently and, and then I came in as a data leader and I decided that I did not want to own that stuff. And I wanted to let teams, I wanted to advise on it and sort of be a part of, Mm -hmm. be, be a good partner to those business leaders in those groups. But I did not want to only have things flow through me because that was just a recipe for disaster. And well, then everyone blames you for everything, Solomon. You're like you're like the one yeah. neck to throttle here. Exactly. Is that oh, it must be Solomon's fault that we didn't have this report ready on time. It must be Solomon's fault. But like, I think you had such a great approach, which is like, how can I be a great partner and a great stakeholder in this discussion, and how can I spread best practices through the organization while at the same time telling these teams, hey, you have to take control over this. Like you're telling me you need this data. You're now having to take control of your own data. You can't just use this as an excuse to say, well, I didn't get X, Y, Z because I was waiting for this data team to accomplish this. Yeah. And I think there's something there's something that is not talked about enough around strat around strat strategic decisions of this type, which is time to market and yes. time to value. And I found that most and, and this this actually I think applies to software as well. It, it would be better if everything went through the data team and the data team did a great job and we had all the benefits of having it go through the data team. Uh, that that that's obvious. The real question is, what does that look like in terms of when the results are going to happen and how badly would that impact the business between now and then in a way that you can't recover from? Like if if you miss a window to do a certain task or to have certain marketing campaigns happen, the world changes, that window closes and people hit or don't hit their numbers that quarter. So a hundred percent. And why are you putting the burden on the data team to, to create business priority? I mean, every single department is going to come to you, the marketing department, the finance department, you know, one of your product departments, every department is going to come to you and say, I have a burning request because nobody has non-burning requests. You know, it's always like four alarm fire time all the time. But basically the problem here is, is that how can you basically say the data team is now responsible for sorting out business priorities all the time? Because that's what you're ultimately asking them to do. And you're, and you're asking them to be in a, put in a position where everyone's a bit mad at them all the time when really they're a collaborative partner that's super important in in helping facilitate all these teams accomplishing their goals. Yeah, totally, totally agree. Um, so obviously, I, I imagine it's been a very interesting seat to be in starting an AI company and then having the generative AI <laughs> wave sort of hit hit you out of nowhere, or probably just, not just come out of crashing nowhere. the tsunami of generative. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I don't think anybody could have predicted how quickly the business world would have said that they were interested in doing something with AI. And and so what what 
what was that like when it first happened? And also, how are you finding, like, how are you advising clients and how are you working with that? Or like, what, 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 what are you, what are you doing to either harness that or to help companies navigate through these, through these AI times? Well, I think a little bit of it is just helping folks get a grip on what's kind of AI fact versus AI fiction, because look, generative is really exciting and it, it hit a nerve because it was very understandable AI. A lot of the machine learning that was happening up until generative for many people, it was behind the scenes. You know, your packages just arrived on time. The plane was at the gate when it was supposed to be, you know, things just worked, but you didn't really think about why they suddenly worked better. Um, and generative, it, it was very tactile in a way. It, it gave people something to play with and they could create with it, which made it viscerally really exciting. You know, it can create new music and new art and new text and, and so much more. And so I think that when it hit a nerve, there was this concept from the boardroom on down of, we need to do something with this. This is exciting. It's like the iPhone all over again, but even more exciting in a weird way, because now I can create art and I can create sonnets in, in Dr. Seuss style meets like Dr. Dre style. So, so, but I think for companies where the rubber hits the road is translating that excitement into practical applications that their team can use. So I think the first thing that we often do is just talk to teams about like, you know, what, what are your business problems? Are they really generative AI problems? I get that it's cool. It's really fun to write memos with chat GPT instead of having to think about them yourself. It certainly saves a, a lot of time, but what is the, the problem that you're trying to solve in your workflow and in your product? And do you need more of a predictive or decisioning AI, or do you need more generative AI that creates, or do you need, uh, AI that looks through data, whether it be historical data sets and makes future predictions on what's going to happen next or actively makes decisions uh, based on what, you know, your goals are, your outcomes that you desire. So I think just sorting that out first is what's necessary. And then also helping companies understand the landscape of limitations with generative insofar as like data privacy limitations. I, I still think it's amazing and hilarious that Instantly, everybody was like super comfortable putting all their company's proprietary secret data into ChatGPT because they didn't want to write a memo to their boss and they had to be told not to. They had to be told, oh, wait, please stop doing that. Or, oh, wait, some of the answers you might get back are not exactly accurate. So, you know, if you're going to go into court, please don't rely on fake cases it may uh, cite. As, as a form of how you're working from now on. So, so there's still the education process is still actively happening. And I think for companies, it's just sorting out what can they practically accomplish right now, given what data they have, what their goals are, and is it about generative? Is it about predictive? Is it about decisioning AI? What makes sense for them right now? Yeah. Um for the company or for the boards and for the CEOs that are telling the people on their on their teams, hey, this is a big thing. We need to be looking at it now. Like, are they right or are they wrong? Uh, they're not wrong. So they're definitely right in that 
this is a big thing. It is transformative in it will create efficiency in certain processes. You know, I, I read an article recently how uh, there was this leaked document. I don't know how leaked it was of employees at Amazon had come up with gener uh, generative AI use cases. And like one of the most popular ones are, you know, these famous Amazon memos because nobody likes PowerPoint presentations yes. at Amazon. They want to write memos. Well, the most obvious business case that was like upvoted a lot was, hey, why don't we use generative AI to write these memos? It's like, great. It just shows you how excited people are about writing these memos and how much time they spend on them. But part of the time they spend on them is sorting through and crystallizing their thoughts. So now if you're just using it as a writing hack because you don't like writing, well, will that necessarily help you sort and crystallize your thoughts and think about, you know, the different angles of the project, or are you just hacking writing and you're going to get a generic response that doesn't really for uh, doesn't really advance your cause for this project. So it, it's interesting. They're, they're right to pay attention to it. They're right that it's going to cause a lot of business efficiency moving forward. I think where they're still struggling is does this apply to them? And in many cases, the answer is no. The answer is, you know, standard predictive AI that your company may be doing or should be doing instead of the decision trees that are literally brittle and broken that you have that, that are like 50 plus years old, like start smaller, start with things that you can fix that may have a lot more operational impact. Yeah, I think that makes complete sense. And I think to your point, some businesses are going to be completely transformed and you as a leader need to be full throttle on how you're going to stay relevant. And some businesses are not going to be changed substantially. Exactly. And, you know, maybe you're, I think McKinsey kind of backed down from, hey, everybody is going to lose their jobs to, okay, maybe 10% of your job will change. Yeah. Well, that, there, there's a significant uh, gap between we are just going to start cutting jobs left and right in the economy to, I think, we might actually create more jobs if everyone's job was 10% more efficient. Yeah, it, it's it's not surprising to see the quick backtrack on a lot of this. And just coming from my experience leading a business where we were generate, like our business was based on data that was the output of an AI model. And it's not it's not so simple to navigate when those models are wrong and yeah. how you manage when the models are wrong. And for internal purposes, it is less existential of a problem than when that actually goes out to customers and customers see what could be crazy hallucinations from a model. It starts to get, it starts to get- I mean, there's get... tremendous risk, Solomon, exactly what you're saying. There's reputational risk, there's potential legal risk. Like if you give bad financial advice or better yet, illegal financial advice based on being over-reliant on a generative model with no guardrails. I think the what makes me more excited about this new generation of tools that we are a part of, admittedly, is that there is this focus, though, on transparency and auditability that I think before, when AI was sequestered in certain and uh, siloed and saying, okay, only certain people can use AI, there wasn't this concept of explain it to me. It was, I can't explain it to you. You'll never figure it out. You don't have enough math to figure this out. 
And now there is more accountability and not just because the regulatory environment is quickly evolving, like you saw what Europe just did and, and what the US is inevitably will do is, is pass some regulatory guidelines, but also because other teams have come to these AI teams and said, listen, we're not gonna feel comfortable launching this unless you're transparent about what it's doing, unless I can audit individual decisions, unless I have some guardrails so I can make sure it's playing by our business rules no matter what happens, because our business rules are tried and true rules that affect our reputation or the legal landscape that we play in. Yeah, totally. Um, so talk through a little bit more. What are some of the, because we've, we've both been in it leading actual businesses. And one of the, one of the natural outcomes of every business is now going to have some sort of AI is that they're going to have to deal and learn all of the things that we've learned the hard way. So what are what are some of the brick walls that these businesses are going to find themselves driving into? Well, I have to tell you, in working in machine learning for a while now, folks are running into so many brick walls, they might as well be the Kool-Aid man. I mean, it's, it's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but the first brick wall that I find that companies run into is almost the, the brick wall of biting off way more than they can chew. Is now that they're bought into AI or the board and executive management is bought into AI, the gut instinct is let's take the biggest thorniest problem we have at the business, the one that affects almost everybody at the business. Let's start with that as our first AI project. And that's so dangerous on so many levels because first of all, it's going to be your hardest problem. It's going to involve the most stakeholders. It's going to have the longest timeline to production. It's going to have the most scrutiny, eyeballs and hesitation. And if that's what you're cutting your teeth on, you're almost setting yourself up to failure. Whereas I, I constantly, tell companies, start with, you know, we do this in product all the time. We like rank our projects based on, you know, what value will it bring to the organization? What's the risk, you know, to the organization? How hard is it to complete? You know, we shirt size things all the time. And yet with AI, we jump into, I want to do the biggest thing ever. I'm going to be such a winner. And that's not how you win. You win with improvements that are measurable, that are that have fast time to value, that you can action with the team that you already have. So that's a first brick wall. And then the second brick wall, and I will controversially say this, Solomon, revolves around data. I think there is this prerequisite paralysis that occurs around data where there have been data transformation pro, uh, projects happening at organizations for a while now at most organizations. Yeah. And there's this paralysis that the data has to be in the state of ultimate perfection before it can be used for machine learning. It's almost become an orthodoxy of like this constant endless project around data and then we have to fix the data and the data is never perfect. And, and, and that creates a problem because you've stopped the organization dead in its tracks and you've created such a big prerequisite where you said you can't start until we get the data to this idealized state and this idealized state may never happen. And because of that, we can't now move on to using this data. And that's another problem that we often work with with teams of saying, look, you actually don't need in many machine learning use cases, 
you actually don't need as much data as you think. You don't need petabytes of data sitting in a data lake. You need just, you know, a thousand rows of clean data. And you can start learning. And it's going to be better than the decision tree that you've been relying upon. And it's going to be more nimble. And you can create a continuous learning system out of it where you're constantly feeding in new data. It's about how you structure it. But if you sacrifice the good for the great and the great being this idealized data set, you're, you're never going to really help your organization and you're, and you're never going to achieve um, that competitive advantage with machine learning. Yeah, uh, that is. So that second statement is highly controversial. And uh, I know, I, I know I'm going to get I'm going to get like data hate mail. I'm anticipating um, from your yeah. listening audience, but it's not that I don't appreciate the work of data transformation, of data cleansing, of data observability. It's not that I don't think these things matter. It's quite the opposite. They do matter. But if you say that they matter so much that nothing can be done until they are in the state of perfection, then literally your organization will do nothing. Yeah. And sooner I or later, some CFO will be like, wait, how much should we spend on this data infrastructure and what did we get out of it? You're like better data, but the pipes are so clean. It's, it's so easy to use. Great. Who's using it? Well, no one yet, but it will be. And, and you're, you're just gonna, you're gonna run headfirst into the brick wall. That's called the CFO. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree. I, I've, I've gotten a lot of flack from the various data governance and, and uh, other other data people on LinkedIn for saying this also, but I think that it also it also mixes up the cause and the effect, right? The, yep. the good data becomes good data after it gets beat up in real life use cases, not through not through a premature optimization exercise that you do on the data engineering side before anybody actually uses the data for anything. Um, exactly. I mean, it, it has to be a balance. Like everything in life, Solomon, things have to be kept in balance where you can still achieve those overarching data goals, but let teams get their wins. If, yes. if you, if you really hijack product teams and business teams from getting low level wins, will you accomplish your data goals? You're, you're actually doing yourself a disservice in the data organization. Yeah, and I actually think that your point about data needing to be far less clean and perfect than you might think in order to start driving value is also very true. And I think this is sort of like the, the data teams in the world are not in trouble in general because they have a data product that's being used in so much and the customers love it and it's driving so much revenue, but the people are getting fired because of data quality. It's not, that's not the problem that's plaguing data leaders. The problem that's plaguing data leaders is they can't get those products, uh, they can't get enough products that are being used and loved by customers and that to the point that the data quality is biting them. And, it, it, exactly, and exactly. It, it behooves, like, that's why I think machine learning and data teams, I mean, they go hand in hand. Because machine learning is like taking all that investment in that infrastructure that data teams have been quietly doing 
behind the scenes, mostly. I mean, let's be honest. It, it's there's no generative data yet <laughs> uh, that that's happened, but it's it's taking all that investment that these data teams have been doing behind the scenes, and it really gives it this new avenue of automation of saying, hey, we didn't just give you a cool Excel spreadsheet that you didn't look at or another sort of data dashboard that may or may not have been used. We're now making that data create smarter infrastructure in our company. It is now, you know, when they said data was oil, well, oil is not useful unless it's powering something. It's not in and of itself valuable. It's only valuable because it powers like our planes and our trucks and, you know, et cetera. Now that's what machine learning is. It is sort of that engine that sits on top of that data saying, give me some data. I'm going to show you what I can accomplish on top of this in an automated form. And that's what's really exciting. And that's why I also think like, you know, data teams need to make sure that that their company can use machine learning more because it really does help them. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's completely true. So given that then, like, and, and I know you talked about this a little, a little bit before, but where, where do you see responsibility for that sort of data product sitting inside organizations? Is it a joint responsibility where everybody should be thinking about that? Is it, like and 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 how do most most organizations that don't have that mindset how how do you recommend that they get there it is a bit of a joint responsibility i will still say this like you can't just put one person in charge and say here's our new data czar and by default, everything has to run through this one organization. I mean, I understand it would be great being the data czar then. Um, but I think for the organization, they're going to fall over themselves because individual teams have different needs and they know their needs and sometimes much better what they're sometimes they don't even articulate correctly what they need from the data team. And, and that's kind of part of that education and evolution process of just even helping these product teams and these frontline teams work with the data teams and saying, how can we better articulate why we're asking what we're asking? Because I think that's where I see a lot of communication problem occurring is a product team will go to the data team and say, hey, or a sales team will go to the data team and say, hey, I need this new dashboard uh, that tells me, you know, sales by product in the Midwest region. And, and instead of sort of interviewing and pushing back and saying, okay, but, but what, what are you hoping to accomplish or what are you trying to accomplish with this? Um, there's this, okay, we'll build you this product. And then it doesn't get used. And they're like, and the data team says, see, see what happens. You know, these people, they come to us and, and they ask us for things and then we build them and we spend all this time and then they don't use them. And then they say the data team is useless. And when it's really that, that's not the, that's not the question they were, they, they were trying to speak each other's language unsuccessfully. The product team was putting things in terms of what the data team can provide me. And the data team wasn't thinking, well, what's the product team actually using this for? And maybe all they need is an API and they can use it in a different capacity that has nothing to do with data visualization. Yeah, that, that, I mean, that, that definitely makes sense. And I think, I think that's the, I mean, that, that's like the, the, not, not, and it's, it's so true. It's the advice that everybody gets. You have to get to the core and the, the need behind the need, the question behind the question. Um, Okay. And that's why I think empowering, you know, that's why, and just to go back to the point, Solomon, that's why, you know, at Savvy, we're trying to empower these product teams because often they know what their problem is and maybe they're not articulating it correctly to the data team, 
but they know what problem they're trying to solve. They know what KPI they're trying to move. In fact, sometimes they're even bonused on it. So, so they know what they're trying to impact. So let them go impact it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I have personally, and, and obviously I, I have a tool now, but for me, one of the big things that I think people don't think about when they have the sort of data, data person pro like when they, when they haven't gotten their productization down it, and that, and that is just such a miss is how employee turnover affects a lot of these processes. And you'll have point. a data scientist who might build a great system to support a, a business leader. And then if they leave, suddenly that system, no one knows how to retrain it. Nobody knows how to get the outputs out. And it just becomes at best something that someone can run, but that that's rare. And then you have to rebuild it again. To what degree, I mean, to what degree does that play into like savvy as a tool and, and, and like the, the value proposition that you bring to companies? I, I think that's an excellent point. And I think, you know, when we talk to our clients, some of them have gone through this exact problem where they've gotten an external consultant or they've used a tool that to them was a bit black box. They didn't know how that tool worked. It was just like, trust us, we're going to improve. We're going to be a point solution for this one process you have. And then what happens is, you know, someone leaves and that's it. Or the consultant, you know, you can't find the consultant and you're having a problem um, because all of a sudden you had a black swan event in the market, like interest rates rising or whatnot. And, and the model's broken and nobody's thought about creating a continuous learning system. I think what was really important for us at Savvy, because we were ultimately a product team at heart that was building products using AI, is that it had... Savvy has to be a collaborative, easy to use tool. Like that was kind of our North Star is it has to be about teams working together towards their product and business goals. And it had to be goal oriented and it had to be easy for folks to onboard. And, you know, we are our, our um, head of client services. I'll tell you that, like, you know, she's trained people in an hour. And they've gone off to the races and, you know, built 15 different AI apps that they can use for different purposes. But it had to be easy because of employee turnover and because of accessibility. Because so if you make that your North Star, you're constantly thinking about how does this just become a tool that the existing team can feel real ownership over? Versus us coming in there saying, we're smarter than you. We know our, your business better than you. You know, we know math better than you. Like that's the wrong approach. The right approach is you're great. You know your business. You know what your problems are. I'm just going to help you get there with something that you can learn and you can learn quickly so that it doesn't become this odious process of like, okay, now you have to have like four months of certifications in order to use this tool. And if that person leaves, well, find somebody else who has four months of time. Yeah, I think that 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 makes a lot of sense. And that's that's exactly one of the real benefits of having a platform like that. Um, for people that want to get in touch or follow along with what you're doing, like, where are you online? What what should they do to, to be in touch? 
Awesome. Um, well, they can absolutely follow me on LinkedIn. It's Maya uh, Mihailov, Maya M uh, at LinkedIn. They can follow Savvy online um, on LinkedIn as well. Um, we have a, a, a very small Insta presence. I think it only has two photos on it. Um, but we also have a small Twitter presence, but we're primarily um, at uh, SavvyAI.com or on LinkedIn is our, our primary socials. All right, uh, eventually, so, uh, eventually, uh, I, I do have my little sister convincing me that we need a, a TikTok presence. I'm just not quite there yet. <laughs> I mean, I, I, uh, do you I, have I, a TikTok presence, Solomon? I, I'm, I'm squatting on the delivery layer TikTok name. I haven't done any, any videos yet. But. All right, I, I, I am here to, uh, to spread and help your videos go viral. I mean, Thank, I, you know I don't what? know Maybe what a we'll viral do. TikTok data video looks like, but I want to see it. I, I'm really here for it. <laughs> we're just we're just gonna have to highlight what you just said, and that could be the the viral TikTok, the viral TikTok video. <laughs> I, right. I I doubt it, but you never know. You never know how viral works. I've I've often thought that when I think about it, it never makes sense to me, and then I see it, and I'm like, oh, that made sense. <laughs> yeah, I I also I I write. I write all my stuff on LinkedIn. I cannot tell in advance which ones are gonna blow up or not, and. Uh, it's been interesting to see. <laughs> it has. See I, I feel the same way. Out. When I put a lot of thought in it, I'm like, this is clever. It's like two views. And when I put zero thought into something, it's like, how did I get 10,000 views on something I put five, less than five minutes of thought into? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's crazy. So. Um, well, Maya, thank you so much. Appreciate it. And uh, everybody go check out Maya and Savvy AI. And thanks for listening to the Delivery, Delivery Layer podcast. And uh, see you on the next episode. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Solomon.